0: Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. This week, we are bringing you a conversation with Will Sieber, who recently finished his 14ers quest out here in Colorado, which essentially was to summit as many of the 14ers as possible in winter. The cold, bleak, Windy, wet, snowy, uh, other adjectives, that that winter. <laughs> the the time of year when you, you don't necessarily want to find yourself on top of a 14,000 foot mountain. Yeah, that's when he chose to try to summit all of the 14ers. And let's get number nerd here for a little bit. So over 90 days... 44 different climbs, 51 summits, 640 miles, and this is the number that blows my mind, 240,000 feet of vertical gain. It was an intense experience. It was a life-changing journey. It was just something really cool that I wanted to hear about. So I reached out to Will and uh, I'm so grateful that he he uh, decided to come by and chat with me. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the rest of our episodes at likeabigfoot.com or on SoundCloud. Uh, and subscribe to iTunes. That's honestly the best way to just, you know, get them every week and listen to them every week. Uh, this one especially, if you want to pair it like a fine wine... <laughs> Uh, Make sure you tune into episode number two with one of my best friends, Calvin Johansson, uh, in the middle of his uh, 14ers project where he did 100 mountains in 100 days. Uh, And then part two of that is episode number 18 when we celebrate the finish of it. And after talking to both Calvin and Will, it's kind of funny the similarities in challenges they faced Including what is going to be legendary Like a Bigfoot podcast material, Mount Wilson. Because they both faced a pretty ginormous struggle on that mountain. So yeah, here we go. Like a Bigfoot podcast number 33, the beast who went through the 14ers quest, Will Sieber.
1: I mean there are a lot of reasons i wanted to embark on 14 requests well one of them was definitely like well what an incredible way to experience the different ranges and different parts of colorado and what they have to offer um you know in a, uh in an abbreviated like period of time you know um i, I thought that was that was one of the cool aspects of the project. And it, uh, I thought it would be cool and it it was fantastic. Um, I, I really did get a lot out of it in that respect. Um, I feel like, uh, I know the state pretty darn well for having only (laughs) been here since October.
0: I mean, I got to imagine you've put many a miles on whatever your car is at this point.
1: Yeah. I don't, I, I, don't know how many I put on uh, since I came out to Colorado but it's considerable <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh, it's been a lot there's been a lot of driving well yeah there's a lot of driving in the fall too while I was preparing
0: yeah so like let's get into it can you kind of give us an idea of what the 14 Quest was
1: um, well the idea was to um, do as many uh, some as many uh colorado 14ers as i could in calendar winter between the solstice on december uh 21st and um the spring equinox which came a day earlier than i thought it would <laughs> on march 20th at 4 a.m uh so between uh, those two points in time summiting as many of the 14ers as as I could and just to, you know, do my best. And ideally, the goal is to get 59, you know, but I just, first time I've really done something like this, so I didn't know what to expect necessarily, but um, in my planning stages and training stages, you know, I was thinking, like, it could be possible for me to do the 59 and I was really hoping to get to 59, but real, but, um, it was more about pushing myself, seeing how far I could go, doing the very best that I could. And I have to say that, that I, I definitely did that. Um, and you know, I didn't end up getting the 59, but, uh, it wasn't really about that, that number, uh, for me anyway there were a lot of a lot of things that uh, i wanted to get out of the experience and reasons that i did it and uh a lot of um, i mean most all of them fulfilled except for that 59 number but um yeah that's kind of the the general I- idea um, i thought it'd be a really cool challenge um and something that, um, I was attempted a couple times in the past. Um, and so since it's a pretty fresh challenge, um, just, uh, made it even more intriguing, I guess.
0: Yeah, man. What, uh, what's your background? Like, do you do crazy adventure things like this or, you know, did you have experience summiting mountains in the winter, which I have to imagine takes quite a bit of skill.
1: Um, my background is, um, mostly, um, a, a hiking background. Um, I mean, I've been doing, um, I've been kind of doing adventure sports ish since I, um, since I was a kid. I've been a whitewater kayaker since I was, I think seven. Oh, wow. (laughs) I started whitewater, whitewater kayaking when I was uh, super young at summer camp, got really into it. Um, and I've been paddling whitewater, um, with periods of time, uh, off, um, like I think in high in high school, I started getting way into mountain biking and I was kayaking less, but I've been, I've been, uh, I've been doing whitewater kayaking for a long time. And, uh, and, um, but I got into, I got into hiking more, uh, when I, let's see, probably uh, a year or two after, after, um, after I graduated uh, college Um, and it was sort of, um, I started, I started doing uh, some uh, back, some, some weekend backpacking trips kind of thing and uh, was you know, starting to crave like more, more of an adventure. And this was, this must've been, uh, probably five, five years ago, uh, five or six years ago, this really like started happening. And I wanted to like, I was, like, I need to come up with like some sort of creative adventure. I was kind of like, uh, I don't know. My everyday routine was sort of maybe getting a little stale, or I just wanted something new, different, interesting uh, and to push myself. So I thought, how about um, how about the hundred mile wilderness in Maine? Like, some, I'm I'm a pretty goal oriented person, and so I like to come up with uh, with a cool idea of a uh, of a project um, or a you know a trip that I think will be fun and challenging and, and interesting. And, um, to have that to work towards, look to like, look forward to and, and work towards. So to, I, I
0: thought I dude, thought I have different ideas. I relate so much to that. <laughs> like I all, I almost need it. Like, so I just finished a big race and now I'm kind of like giving myself a month of not setting any goals and already I'm like a week and a half in and it's kind of driving me crazy. So
1: That's exactly what's that's exactly what's happening to me right now <laughs> post fourteen requests. Yeah. Uh, I'm supposed to be taking it easy for a month. Uh, I talked to uh I talked to a co like a, a coach sort of to like consult uh consult with him about like uh, you know how should I approach, like, recovering from this? And um, he told me, like, you know, take two weeks of doing absolutely nothing pretty much and then start doing a little bit of swimming, light swimming, maybe a little bit of, like, light bouldering, and then go for a run and see how you feel. I'm, like, thinking to myself, this is going to be hard. <laughs> and, like, I, you know, at the end of 14 requests, I was thinking, the only thing I was thinking is, like, I can't wait to just friggin' relax. Not just relax for a day, but just Relax.
2: Yeah.
1: And then it comes around, and a couple of days go by. I'm like, "Crap! I just want to go back in the mountains, like right away."
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's exactly, exactly what's going on. Well, and I gotta imagine can't help but think about the next move.
0: Oh, for sure. I I gotta imagine the hundred mile wilderness is like kind of the perfect goal because it's really defined. You know, there's a defined ending in sight, and you're like, "Okay, I just I'll go 100 miles, and then I'll be done."
1: Right. Yeah, um, I thought it was. Um, well, I hadn't been to Maine before, um, and actually, it came about by I was like Google searching, like what's the most beautiful section of the of the AT? You know, I wanted uh, something that was like going to be a, a few days and challenging, uh, and like what's most one of the most beautiful, memorable. I, the AT is still something that I'd love to do. Um, like in its entirety as a through hike, but um, and maybe maybe I will at some point. Maybe I won't. Um, the mount like uh mountaineering goals have kind of like overshadowed yeah my through hiking uh, aspirations. But like, um, yeah, hundred mile wilderness seemed cool because it's this finite uh, like number of miles. It's cool to me that it's supposed to be the most remote uh, part. And so I thought, um, hmm, it's, I'm going to do it in, uh, late November. (laughs) So it was like pretty winter conditions. Um, and just to make things a little spicier, I guess. (laughs) Um, and so a few months leading up to that, that was the first real, uh, adventure. I, unless I'm forgetting something that came before it, but that was, I kind know of where this all started, and the addiction for like these uh, these cool challenge adventures came from. That was the the first one, and obviously the first one where everyone's like, "What what are you thinking?" Like,
0: <laughs> so you we, went by yourself?
1: Yeah, you know. yeah. So that was that was the whole thing. I wanted I wanted to um, do a solo uh, late fall hundred mile wilderness uh, trip, and I wanted to do. Do in five days, um, and uh, and I uh, I didn't really know much about training for such things, but I did my best. <laughs> I did the best I could uh, to to train for it, prepare for it, um, and uh, it ended up. I uh, actually only got halfway through.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: I um, ended up having. Um. Uh, really horrible ankle pain that kept building um, as I went through, and I got to mile fifty after like. Um, I think it took me three. I think it was three days, and I got to mile fifty and uh, uh, got ended up getting a ride out. But um, it was an incredible learning this short three days was incredible, <laughs> like learning experience and, uh, and, you know, definitely got my feet wet.
0: Yeah, man. Literally. And, uh, probably. <laughs>
1: yeah. There are a lot of stream crossings there and that was some cold water. Um, but it was, yeah, that was, it was great. And that was just, yeah, that was the beginning. Um, and then I d- started doing a lot more hiking from there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, started looking at uh the next i think the next thing that i was looking towards was Aconca, aconcagua in uh, argentina um and so i think after that definitely not <laughs> i don't think i was uh had enough experience to be looking at doing uh, aconcagua is that is that uh, the
0: biggest one in south america
1: yeah, it is. It's, oh,
0: that's funny, man. So, uh, yeah. did you end up go? Because like I I wrote 20, down twenty
1: two thousand eight hundred. Yeah, feet.
0: I wrote down on some questions. I wrote, uh you know, do you have any interest in the Seven Summits at all? So
1: originally that was my goal. Okay. Originally, like that's what I was like my life mountaineering goal. But funny thing about Seven Summits is like, we get like more and more into mountaineering it's like there's a zillion other things that are cooler more like or i don't know in my in my opinion or some people's opinion like uh more more interesting or like uh just different or um there's a zillion mountains to climb out there and (laughs) like uh i don't know it's just my world kind of expanded when i got more into mountaineering uh and now I have a different idea of, of what my, my goals might be probably. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yes, I, I, for probably a period of a couple of years was thinking about seven doing the seven summits and, um, I was thinking, Oh, I want to do them solo. Um, and yeah. So while some of the seven summits are still on my to-do list for sure, um, (laughs) Uh, I I don't I don't necessarily, not necessarily trying to do the seven as a as a goal per se.
0: Yeah, man. Well, I gotta uh, imagine now, like with your experience. I mean, you know, some of them are relatively quote unquote easy. Uh, like Kilimanjaro is basically just a hike up it, right?
1: Yeah, it's a hike. Um. it's uh super... it's kind of a circus from what i read oh really um, it's kind of like the opposite it's kind of like the opposite of the wilderness experience that i go into the mountains to have usually yeah it be an incredible cultural experience um and this is all from what i've heard from people who've done it and from what i've read about the experience of climbing kilimanjaro but it's uh yeah to be honest it's not what i'm looking for in a in a climb of a, a high altitude peak um you, you're kind of the the way that uh, they run the mountain there. Um, like uh, the gov- it, the government controls like how uh, it's gu- guide guides are required. Uh, you have you have to have a guide and um, you sort of have to have porters. You can get around it if you try really hard and find the right people that are willing to let you go without porters, but it's kind of a thing where you're supporting the local economy, uh, supporting, uh, the people who work on the mountain, um, that, that kind of thing. Uh, most people, all their stuff is carried for them. It's a very different experience than, uh, what I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess what, what I'm, what I'm going for. Yeah, so yeah. Kilimanjaro is not on the list of, of peaks that I would, I guess I would really, uh, Want to pursue, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm more into like a more like remote wilderness, uh, self, uh, super self proficient experience, uh, kind of um, getting away from the crowds, I guess. I really like that. And so, you yeah, know, maybe at a different time in my life, so Kilimanjaro would be something that uh, is intriguing to me and definitely experiencing the culture <laughs> in a different part of the world. Um, would be a phenomenal thing, uh, to experience, but it's, a, that's a different, that's kind of a different, uh, goal, different, uh, yeah, different thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. So um, how much, how much experience mountaineering specifically in the winter? Because, you know, um, a lot, a lot of times for the 14ers, I mean, most people are hiking them in the summer in, uh July or August or September. Um, winter is kind of a special, like, even if you get one in the winter, it's kind of a special deal. So what made you, what made you want to choose that? Like, do you just crave the cold?
1: <laughs> uh, not really. I actually, um, to be honest, I'm kind of a pansy about the cold. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I hate being cold. Um, if I, if I wake up in the morning and, uh, and I'm, I'm cold in my sleeping bag or cold in bed or something, it's so hard to get the motivation to, <laughs> to go out the door and climb a winter 14 er um, I don't, um, yeah, that's the thing. I, I don't, I don't deal well with cold actually. Like, I mean, you know, if I, if I say that people would think like, yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> you just spent the whole winter climbing winter 14 ers but to be honest, it's, to me, it's it's all in the in the preparation. Like it's uh, it's an interesting problem to solve. It's how to stay comfortable in this environment where, where it's difficult to stay comfortable. How to thermoregulate, learn to thermoregulate properly, adjust your layering accordingly, adjust your output accordingly, so you're not sweating. Uh, you're moving fast enough to um, stay warm enough, but not but not sweat because you know if you if you sweat um, that's the beginning of a very bad day yeah. um you usually i mean if it's cold if it if it's cold enough you know uh, it's uh it's really if i'm cold something's wrong
2: yeah okay
1: uh and so i find that i found it's that when i'm in the mountains if everything's going well i'm comfortable and if I'm not comfortable, I'm going to go home. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so that's part of, the, part of the, big, the big challenge and what's so appealing to me is, is, you know, refining your processes, refining the way you do things so that you stay comfortable and happy. If you're uncomfortable, it's not fun and um you know it, it's mountaineering, and no matter what there's a certain degree of suffering, and like trying to like part of my you know goal in the mountains is to figure out the ways to minimize it as much as possible, so yeah there are times when I'm cold, but it's gonna only be a few seconds here and there changing layers or like when I'm stopped to like uh you know refuel like uh eat eat and drink, and I've been uh stationary for for more than five minutes will start cooling off and, and it's just time to start moving again. You know, it's, it's just short, short bits of time
0: yeah. and that's manageable. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, how did you, uh, I, I, I was just curious, how did you, like when you needed to refuel, I mean, I got to imagine that's when you would get really cold cause you're taking your gloves off, you know, you're reaching into your pack, getting some food. How did you go about managing that?
1: Um, just, um, it's really like for every little thing in mountaineering, it's, it's all the, the small things, the details that count, like, uh, maybe for cold, cold weather mountaineering. So you kind of have a system that you end up refining, and, uh, you know, you, you end up becoming quicker and quicker as you, um, as you get more experience, you know, with the tasks over and over again. And, uh, as you, you know, if you find be- ways to improve the little things you're you're doing to make them quicker and more efficient easier um so you know I, I know where stuff stuff is uh yeah in my pack for like super easy access so i'm never i'm never stopping too long and i i really never uh take it's very rare that i have bare hands out okay and i have liner gloves um uh, I have liner, I have liner gloves, and actually, um, I, I've really damaged circulation in my hands and uh, in my fingers and toes, so I actually kind of rely on um, either. Well, in the past, I've relied on chemical warmers. But, okay. Uh, in, like ridiculous reliance on I use so many of them and way way more than anyone I've ever met uh, <laughs> I use so many of them and then I uh I decided this winter to give uh electric gloves a shot oh, and man. it's been an interesting experience um but given how bad the circulation is in my fingers from years of um frost nipping over and over again, kayaking when I was growing up uh, in the winter, like throughout the winter I'd go out on on the water. And, you know, as a kid, I I didn't, you know, know the consequences of frost nipping my fingers over and over again, doing cold uh, winter uh, training, like workouts. uh, And uh, so, yeah, anyway, the electric gloves were a huge help. So I rarely ever exposed, my bare my, my bare fingers. Um, but, uh, if there were times when I did, and if I, if I do, they, they start, they start freezing immediately. And that's, you know, that's the short periods of super unpleasant cold that I'm talking about that I try to re- try really hard to minimize.
0: Yeah. Is it, um, is it super painful? Like having frost nipped fingertips and toes?
1: Yeah. It's super painful when it happens. It's super painful when they, when they saw out too. Um, it's known as the screaming barfies.
0: Yeah. Cause at first I thought you were going to say like, I have bad circulation in my fingers and toes. So I feel no cold. And I was like, well, wow, that works.
1: <laughs> uh, no, it's I the wish. <laughs> it's
0: definitely the yeah, opposite. That'd
1: be, yeah, no, it's, it, it, I still, I still have like, uh, enough feeling in them to definitely uh, feel the pain when it when they start to get cold and the problem is without the uh, hand warmer the chemical warmers the the gloves uh it happens so fast um at my old job i i did a lot of work with infrared cameras and i thought it'd be like interesting to go out in the cold and like look at what my fingers were doing and it was just scary like um my circulation is so poor that i look at my fingers to the infrared camera and see that uh, no matter what the temperature is outside, basically that my fingertips, they match the ambient temperature. Whoa! So, um, and the temperature gradient through my hand is significant. Like uh, the tips, like, you know, the palm of my hand will be like, you know, 75 degrees Fahrenheit or something. And then my fingertips will be like 20.
0: (laughs) That's insane, man. Yeah. No, I mean, but so that's that common. One that's one of the like,
1: biggest problems I had to, sorry.
0: That's a pretty common thing with frostbite though, right? Especially multiple bouts of it.
1: The more you do it, the more like nerve damage and circulation problems gotcha. you have. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, I you know, I, I've met a number of people who experienced the same, you know, issue of repeated frost nippings, and, you know, uh, it becomes more and more of the an issue like getting cold quickly and having to use much thicker gloves, much thicker mittens, um, and being more careful. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a common thing, but again, I've never encountered anyone who had it as bad as me in that (laughs) department. It's uh, that was one of the biggest problems I had to overcome this winter is dealing with that with both my, my fingers and toes. And I had repeated, uh, repeated days, uh, uh, a number of trips where it was a real problem and I was considering turning around, um, but ultimately figured out a way around it. it was just like stuffing, uh, multiple, like, uh, multiple toe warmers, it, cramming them in the front of my boot, like against my bare skin. Yeah. Um, that, that can get me through. It's just, I end up, uh, it's, uh, uh it's very uncomfortable walking like that though. Dude, <laughs> there isn't not... enough room in the boot.
0: I gotta imagine. so how many mountains, how many mountains in until you kind of felt in a flow or in a routine, or like you figured out how to manage those little issues like that?
1: Um, I'd say I was about halfway through winter when I finally figured out a system for my feet that I was okay with that it was reliable enough. Um, that um, it was sustainable. It wasn't perfect because the system would still fail periodically. And when the heaters fail, you know, it doesn't matter what the conditions are. I have to stop and like attend to it, or my my toes will get frostbitten by the end of the day.
0: Yeah. Well, and I gotta but imagine. I,
1: like, I, I know that. So
0: I gotta imagine mentally. I mean, you, dude, I saw your video of. It's like a GoPro video of, I think it was Little Bear, maybe? I right yeah, there? yeah. Okay. I, yeah, that was the one I posted. First of all, the most terrifying. Like, I can't, I'm sitting here sweating and like shaking nervously, like huddled in a corner watching it. I don't even know how you did that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like, if you're so focused on the pain in your toes, in a point like that where you need full concentration, I gotta imagine that's like, so hard
1: yeah um that's it's definitely um one of the things that's nice about the fact that there are so many peaks that aren't very technical at all in any technically uh technically speaking class four isn't even technical climbing but yeah. compared to like the class two hikes that make up most of the 14 years um yeah, the Southwest Ridge of Little Bear is pretty gnarly um, compared to that, for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, the good thing is there are lots of like easier, uh, easier ones to kind of dial the system in because on a ridge like that, yeah, that's no place to be having problems with your gear um, like that. Um, and so there were instances. Where uh, I was, ha- I had some issues with my extremities on like a knife edge. Um, I on on Capital
0: um, on the knife edge. On,
1: yeah, on on Capital, um, my toes I could barely feel my toes all day. Um, my, that was the first time that my toe heaters failed. And
0: yeah, it was
1: kind of interesting. I I wish I wish I had had a previous winter kind of dial in the system before I had attempted this, but you know it's uh, (laughs) yeah. But yeah, so I was figuring this out as I went, and so the first time I had a heater fail was yeah, it was um, as we were about to start um, booting up K two to start the Capitol Ridge, and so I spent pretty much that whole day, um, you know really anxious about my toes. Um, and, uh, what's, what's, what's nice is when it's a sunny day and, you know, this happened before the sun came up, we were on the summiting K2, which is the third year that has a connecting ridge to get to capital, And that's the standard route. You, you summit K2, and then you uh, take the ridge uh, to the summit of capital. Um, and, um, we summit k two at sunrise. And as soon as the sun, uh, hit my boots, um, it's amazing how powerful that is and how quickly, uh, the radiation, uh, will warm up your, your toes. So that when that happened, I realized like it's going to be unpleasant, but it's going to be possible because once I was on K2, I was thinking that I was going to have to turn around, but, um, the sun, luckily the sun hit, I had enough feeling in my toes. I was like, I mean, it's going to be uncomfortable, but I can do this. Um, and then, and then when you're on the knife edge where like uh, you have to be completely focused on what you're doing. Um, yeah. It's absolutely uh, paramount like that. You're focused on the task at hand and you're not thinking about your toes and you know i would periodically think about my toes like oh oh no like <laughs> they, they're really hurting right now but then i have to shift my attention straight back to yeah. what it is that i'm focused on and then you look
0: down it doesn't yeah you look down and see you a thousand foot think, drop
1: off <laughs> yeah my toes are not like what i need to be worried about right now <laughs> um yeah so i you know it's a constant. And those those kinds of knife edges are super interesting, like mental exercise. I mean, it's just um, it's just such a, yeah, it, the psychology there what, what goes through what goes through your mind, and like the, some of the biggest lessons I learned uh, this winter came from experiences like that where you're super exposed on uh, class four terrain. And, um you know, I hadn't done much of that stuff uh before uh, the fall of this year, so most of my experience doing that kind of thing was in October and November when I was preparing for this the 14er uh, quest project and um so it's i I came up with strategies for myself to to get through those the stretches and um in, in the end, uh, they, they end up being some of the most uh, awesome, fun, like, memorable experiences that yeah. I can, you know, recall in, in my from my whole life of doing outdoor things. I mean, it's incredible, but um, definitely some interesting lessons learned. Like that, that, I, you know, uh, think strategies I use to get myself through those.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. What kind of? I'm sure you le- first. I'm sure you learn a lot about yourself in those moments, but. What kind of strategies did you use? Were they like little mental games you played or or what?
1: Um, the The biggest thing I found for difficult terrain, and I think um, this is uh, and this this ended up applying in a, a bigger bigger picture stuff as well is if you take a knife edge like capital um, and you look at the whole thing, it's really daunting. Um, and at at least, at least for me, I looked at that thing in winter and it was like, Holy crap. Um, and then even, um, you know, just starting off from K2, um, and you look at, you look at the 50 feet in front of you and it's really daunting and it's so easy to get caught just gawking at what's in front of you and not making any progress. Like, I I repeatedly find myself – I think uh, the first time I – the first big time this happened was on the S-Ridge of uh, Snowmass, which I did in uh, uh, in snowy conditions in November, I think. Um, I think it was November. Maybe it was October. Um, Yeah, looking at – I kept getting stopped. I kept catching myself stopping and, and looking at this, this crazy Ridge in front of me, just thinking like, like shaking in my boots, you know, just like, Holy crap. Like I, I can't, uh, you know, you're just staring at it kind of in fear and thinking like how far you have to go and how slow you're moving. And, uh, Because your pace really tends, at least mine, (laughs) until I get uh, more proficient at scrambling, which I very well intend to, Um, your pace really slows uh, on the harder terrain like that because you gotta be super careful because you're you're exposed and you're taking one one step at a time uh, really carefully. And so it's so easy to get caught uh, looking at all that that's in front of you. It's very intimidating. And I just realize how inefficient that was, you know, I'm just, I'm, I take a bunch of steps and then I sit and stare at what's in front of me, like thinking it's, uh, how scary it is. Yeah. And, um, and I re I realized like, I'm, I'm not making good time at all. Uh, I need to come up with a solution for this problem. And then what I realize is you know, if you look at the two or three feet in front of you, it's really doable. It's totally doable. Move to move, handhold to handhold, like, uh, it, it's not bad in class four isn't difficult. Technically. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like difficult rock climbing. It's just exposed. The moves aren't very difficult. It's just scary because if you did mess up the results would be catastrophic. And so, but if you look at the couple feet in front of you, um, it looks doable. If you look 20 feet in front of you, not so much. So I kept starting to remind myself task at hand. Like, over and over again, just reminding myself, focus on the task at hand. Stop looking at what's 10, 20, 30 feet in front of you or further. Just focus on what's right in front of you and um, and go, go step by step, you know. And that was one of the most effective things that I figured out for myself, you um, just uh, made a huge difference because then I, you know, then you, you make progress. Uh, you just keep keep moving forward, and I, and I, I found that to be true through the whole uh, on the on the scope of the project as a whole as well. Because if you think about doing fifty nine of these things in winter, and one of the biggest uh, differences about winter is the mileage and the vertical gain is way way uh bigger than in the summer because you got almost with a few exceptions almost all all of the all the routes are considerably longer because of the road closures yep um so the winter road closures add many miles to each and many thousands of feet of vertical to each route so that's one of the one of the challenges of doing them in winter um is the total mileage for the whole thing is way bigger. So if I if I were to be thinking to myself about how ridiculous it is to consider doing them all uh in winter. You know, I have two months left and I have forty some odd peaks <laughs> left to do. Like holy moly, like this is not possible. Yeah man. You know, it it starts this negative uh this negative thought train that's just you know, and I find any any sort of negative thoughts like in this kind of endeavor they're crushing and like any strategies to to wipe those out and stay positive and stay in the moment and stay focused on the tangible tasks at hand ha- were huge in getting as far as I did and so instead of thinking about uh, I have you know 45 peaks left I think no tomorrow I'm going to uh do Mount Lindsay I'm going to summon Mount Lindsay you know and
0: that, in my mind, is totally doable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, dude, it's so it's it such a terms. it's such a great experience to actually have because it's the perfect metaphor for whatever goal you're shooting for. You know what I mean? It's funny you describe that because I had I climbed South Maroon this summer, and that was definitely by far the hardest one I've ever done. And. Yeah, the same exact, same exact experience where it's like, just look down, like, it's really obvious where you need to step next. But then even, it was funny, even looking backwards as at where I already went, I was like, how the hell did I do that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it's pretty wild, pretty wild, uh, um, the experience, uh, both, both physically and psychologically. Yeah. Um uh yeah, exposure is a really interesting uh thing to deal with and i and i think it's a learned skill as well um, i i think i'm way better at dealing with exposure now than i was in october that's for that's for sure
0: like yeah.
1: way way better
0: yeah definitely um, how uh when when you woke up so wait, i guess some logistic questions did you like were you staying in hotels this whole time because were you? I mean, were you bouncing all around the state, like following the weather, like where the weather was nice, or did you have a set itinerary?
1: Um, absolutely, didn't have a set itinerary. Um, it, it, my my strategy for the winter, and whether I, I mean, I wasn't able to follow it nearly as well as I had hoped. Although I, I think I did a good job. With following it as best as I could, but the strategy was, um, like in, in my in my mind, the, the biggest challenge of the uh, of this uh, doing this winter project logistically is is dealing with the avalanche conditions. So there are fourteen routes out of the forty three. I think it's I think it ended up being forty three routes was the goal. Um, so fifty nine summits, forty three routes, and fourteen of those routes have uh, considerable um, a lot of avalanche terrain and then there isn't a way around it.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and so those 14 routes were priority. Um, and any time doesn't matter where in the state it is, any time that there is a window avalanche conditions wise, I must go for one of those. Um, and so that, that like kind of trumps everything else. So I'm constantly on the lookout for when could one of these 14 routes go. And so the weather and uh, avalanche conditions are aligned properly for that within my acceptable level of risk avalanche wise. And, uh, I really tried to go with partners, uh, for those routes, um, partners with Abbey deer, um, and, and good, uh, good uh, snow um good good experience yeah. with uh, making good uh, snowpack evaluation did these um, partners
0: come like along the way as you're doing the project were people asking to join you or did you have them kind of planned out from the beginning um
1: i uh it, it was it was a little bit of both i mean i really i, I really uh met a lot of uh, great partners uh through this winter experience, which was another f- one, phenomenal outcome, um, yeah. and yeah, that was that was part of it. And like this sort of uh, interview process, like there were because of what I was posting online, there were a lot of people uh, sending me messages about climbing, and I, I I really did have to be careful about trying to figure out um, who you know who were uh, who can handle that kind of yeah and um and in in the end i ended up finding some really awesome people to get out there with to confident and competent and uh very experienced and i ended up learning a lot from these people and um it was it was great in that respect but anyway strategy wise yeah it was um the big the big 14 of those um that came first and then in Bad weather and high avalanche conditions. I filled in the the plan was to fill in those periods of time with the easier, low consequence uh,
0: peaks. Gotcha. That makes sense to me, man. Um, and,
1: and and that that was that was sort of the plan. And so that plan, yes, it had me bouncing all over the place, which created uh, issues logistically, time wise, because. I need eight hours of sleep between these things for this to be like sustainable all winter. So that was like huge. I I need to have eight hours of sleep to recharge, to be fresh enough to do this stuff, to recover well enough, uh, to keep going. Um, And I have all these driving times. So logistically figuring out, you know, you finish one peak at 5 PM and you got six hours uh, five hours of driving, six hours of driving, worst case scenario, uh, to get to the next place you want to go because that's where the weather window is taking you. And still, uh, you know, if you finish a peak at 5 PM or something, 6 PM or even later, you got to drive six hours and you want eight hours of sleep. It's not possible (laughs) to start the next one in time. So it's an interesting logistical challenge from that standpoint. Um, he's constantly, uh, you know, thinking about how much, uh, how much daylight I have. And by, and by the, by the end of the project, I kind of let the whole daylight, uh, anxiety thing go. I was just, uh, totally fine, fine with the second half of winter. I really started just changing my mindset on that. Cause the first half I was super afraid of being above tree line in the dark. Yeah. And then just slowly adjusted to like, well, really, what happens when I'm above tree line in the dark? Yeah, nothing <laughs> really is changing that much. Unless I'm on like class three or class four terrain. Of like course. still like, I, I definitely want to be down, but, um, for most of the routes is kind of like, eh, <laughs> yeah. but I got, got used to the concepts and a lot of, a lot of this stuff, uh, in the mountains in winter, uh, is, uh, with stuff that seems, um, scary uh super intimidating at first you end up adjusting to it or you change your mindset over time and um it's just kind of interesting how that um evolves
0: so, yeah. yeah man you get used to it what scares you at the beginning becomes something you're you're used to like after 20 mountains i have to imagine definitely, definitely. which is funny like cuz you know like i said i'm looking at your video of little bear or i'm thinking about the Capital peak knife edge and you know it's terrifying to me but also I, I have to keep in mind i don't have the experience you know if if you slowly work your way up to those things they're probably still pretty scary but you know you can handle it at that point
1: right and um there's a line that stands out to me from the jerry roach guide jerry roach has a, one of the most famous guidebooks yep. for the 14ers and there is I, I think I think I'm giving the right. Yeah, you know, I think it's from his his book. There was there was one route description where he, you know, there are options, and he said um, for exposure exposure hardened veterans, <laughs> this route should be no problem. And I and I think this was in October that I read this, and I thought uh, I thought, huh? So the more you're exposed to exposure, I guess what I was just gleaning this from this one sentence. I guess there are people out there who've been on exposed stuff a lot, and you get used to it. okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, and it's definitely true. Uh, it definitely proved true um, you you get uh you get accustomed to it and it gets uh it's still frightening, but uh, definitely less so <laughs>
0: yeah, Well let's talk real quick about the obstacles. so when you're waking up and you know the temperatures. Like freaking cold. I don't know. I don't, how cold did it get?
1: Um, I had thermometer uh, for part of for part of the winter, <laughs> and then I stopped carrying it. Um, Good idea. The coldest the coldest I measured was um, was minus twenty, and probably what I'm guessing were like forty or fifty mile an hour winds. Jeez,
0: what mountain um, was that?
1: That was massive.
0: Okay. Oh
1: my god. And that wasn't even at the summit that I measured that, no that way. temperature. Um so it was colder up top for sure.
0: I'm imagining um, you just in frustration throwing the thermometer and be like, screw that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't even want to know. It was
1: it was, it was definitely that now was that was one of the days that I was having problems with my foot heater. So oh, um that was kind of, that was a stressful one. <laughs> um, so that was one, that was one of the days where I jammed a bunch of chemical warmers in my boot. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: because my toes were freezing. Um, and there were really only a handful of days that were, that were that kind of, uh, that kind of cold. I mean, probably, there were probably 10, 10 or so days out that were, um, cold like that gotcha. um a couple of them were uh oh doing Cresto Needle. that was one of the coldest days and it's it's incredible like how different the experience is uh when it's 15 or 20 degrees colder the yeah. difference that 15 or 20 degrees makes um uh it is, is pretty pretty big um the consequence for a mistake um is so much is so much higher. You, you get cold you get so much colder so much faster. Um and uh yes, but for the most part, um for the most part throughout the winter I think that temperatures um range between uh zero and twenty, I wanna say.
2: Okay. Um,
1: in what, in
0: general. What about like white wind, out conditions? Did you ever face that? That so that can be really dangerous in those uh, yeah. mountains. I have to imagine.
1: Yeah, I faced that. I faced whiteout conditions a bunch of times. Um, I don't know, maybe like, like true whiteout, probably like five or six times. Um, like quasi whiteout, where it, a true whiteout is when you're walking in the snow and literally you can't feel whether you're moving forward or backwards or sideways you just it just totally messes with your senses um and that's like true whiteout. but then like quasi what i call like partial whiteout is is when it's uh i mean you, you can't really you you can see some like a little bit something and i had that a lot yeah and true white out i experienced like five or six times and that's scary and i'm just literally relying on gps
0: that's what the I was going to ask. Okay, so you're you're using a GPS to kind of guide you down at that point.
1: Absolutely. Oh, man. Um, what
0: what mountains did did that happen on?
1: Um, I had uh, let's see Humboldt was like that. Um, Sunshine and Red Cloud were like that.
0: Was it ever at a dangerous part? Um,
1: no, I, I, uh, I was pretty good about making sure that I did, uh, routes on days where it could be, be like that, um, where, where whiteout was possible. I made sure I was on a route that would be manageable in a whiteout. Um, and the yeah, I tried to make sure I was away from places where there could be potential cornices where, um, you know, anything where like try to be on routes with big wide ridges, um, uh, that gave me some room for error with the GPS and it'd still be okay. That was kind of the, the idea there. And from the get go, the plan was like, it was pretty much it, if the wind is below 60 miles an hour, I'm going,
0: um, <laughs> that's so like just it, to a regular person sitting in their warm house that sounds so insane
1: <laughs> <laughs> i figured that was the kind of strategy that had to be in place for this to this to be possible you Definitely. know what i mean um but the thing the thing is the difference between experiencing 60 miles an hour 60 mile an hour winds um something like the southwest ridge of little bear versus uh on something like quandary yeah uh that's huge you know um so i tried to on those days tried to put myself in places where uh the consequences for getting off route were not so bad
0: yeah so when you knew it was going to be like completely crappy out what motivated you to take those first steps out of your bed putting on your clothes getting going
1: uh that's a good question um just the challenge is invigorating, like I uh, just um, I mean, while while the thought of those things, uh, really, really hard wind, no visibility, um, it, it's not a pleasant thought. Um, the challenge of pushing through and summiting regardless is just. Uh, I, it's still appealing. Um, still want the adventure, creating yes. the adventure. Um, like I feel, I, I felt up to the challenge anyway, and uh, is willing to willing to push. You know, um, I'd say that. Also, I would, I would be extra positive and uh, idealistic and optimistic about what. I was going to expect that day, you know, if, if I were to get out of bed thinking like, uh, I'm going to be like the day I did Humboldt, I was, it was literally, I mean, I'm familiar with wind speed because, uh, um, uh, I spent a lot of time out in New Hampshire, um, oh, yeah. before I came out to Colorado. Yeah. Mount Washington,
0: um, the craziest.
1: And Mount Washington. Yeah. I did Mount Washington a lot. And the summit has, a. weather observatory. So I'd be able to check the wind speed. (laughs) And, um, and so that's pretty cool. So I, I have a good, uh, idea of what the wind speeds are. A lot of people overestimate what they are, but uh, I think I have a pretty accurate idea of what they are because of my experiences on Mount Washington. And if I got out of bed thinking that, okay, I'm going to go up Humboldt today and I'm going to have the 65 or 70 mile an hour wind in my face. Um, (laughs) and not going to be able to see a thing, and it's going to be, you know, way below zero. I I don't think I could get out the door. I think that I get out of bed thinking this is going to be adventure, but it's like I, I don't, I don't, I'm I not thinking about uh, <laughs> walking straight into a 70-mile-an-hour wind. It makes, it makes going straight into a headwind is so... Uh, so much harder <laughs> than, uh, say, uh, like it, that That was one of the hard, harder days, actually, humble. Yeah. Uh, just because of walking straight into that wind for hours on end, um, so much slower, oh my um, so much more difficult. Um, that actually... So yeah, I think I kind of have to lie to myself to get myself out the door. There you yeah, go, I wouldn't man. think that I would be experiencing it that
0: bad. Yeah, the power <laughs> of positivity, you know? Or like... Yeah, realistically you're like this is going to be like there's going to be moments that are challenged but nothing I can't handle, which is really cool. Um that kind of brings I have a few like really quick questions uh to kind of uh wrap up the podcast a bit. So Sure. Uh what what was the longest day?
1: Um like psychologically longest day or both. like yeah, actually time wise
0: <laughs> psychologically first that's the
1: yeah. oh man um, it's a tough question um, what would be gosh I, I might have to look at my list of <laughs> my <laughs> list of what I did this winter to actually recall what because there there were some there 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 were a handful of uh routes that on the way out just felt like a total death march oh okay absolutely little bear was the longest day yeah not actually time-wise but psychologically
0: how Um, long were you up on that ridge because that has to be exhausting mentally
1: um i wasn't actually on the ridge that long um i think it may have taken an hour um, to get across the exposed part of the ridge, and it took a fraction of that to get back once I had steps in it and everything. Um, it probably took 40 minutes to get back. So I that, that was only probably like two, maybe two and a half hours total out and back across the exposed part. Um, but it was really long about that day it was the approach, and. Getting and doing the approach in reverse uh, on the way down, um, and it was that was the longest day because uh, that is like a pretty serious bushwhack um, to access that ridge, and the snow conditions were absolutely awful for trail breaking. So it was just the most soul sucking like trail breaking uh, bushwhack approach I think maybe i experienced all winter and i think it wouldn't be that bad if it weren't for the snow so it yeah. was like melt freeze crust uh it was is it was melt freeze crust that wasn't frozen enough to stay on top Ugh. it was frozen enough to every time uh you take a step you bust through uh with your snowshoe and um like, uh, I was I was going through, like, a foot or foot and a half deep. And then the, the freeze crust on top makes it extremely inefficient to pull your, your leg out after, to pull the snowshoe out after, so you kind of get stuck on each step. Oh, no, and I man. was moving at .2 miles an hour, I think, oh, no. through the whole approach. And it was the same on the way back. And, um, I think that one, uh, on the way back was, uh, I, of of the whole winter, I was the most happy I was to see my truck Dude, (laughs) of every, and it was, it was all because of that, the approach. And I, you know, I, I, I got a bunch of scrapes and, uh, and cuts all over from, from the bushwhack because there's so many, uh, it's pretty brambly.
0: (laughs) That sounds, it sounds amazing in like the most horrible way, if that makes (laughs) sense. Uh, what was the longest day just logistically?
1: Um, let's see.
0: Logistically,
1: it may have been
0: uh, just like estimation-wise, I guess.
1: May have been South Maroon. Um, um, probably Pyramid. Pyramid or South South Maroon. In Pyramid, we didn't summit, but um, I think Pyramid. It was thirteen hours. Uh, up. It was 13 oh hours God. from the trailhead to our turnaround point. Um, and then. How far did you get? I don't know if that was a 20 hour, 19 or 20 hour day. We got to 13.5 um, and um, and turned around there. Um, but that was, yeah, that was a, a longer. It was definitely a longer day. That was the first one after. That was my first one back, I think, after the uh, whole Giardia thing.
0: Oh, yeah, man. I ma'am. think I could be, could be mistaken. Did that happen like halfway through?
1: It was about halfway through, yeah. Okay. And that was a major setback.
0: I so got, how much ever, time, how after much time that, off?
1: After that happened, uh, I think it was six or seven days. I'm not I'm not sure. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Um, I actually want to go back and look. <laughs> Curious at how many how many days that set me back, but it was it was considerable. Yeah. Um, and so I think Pyramid was the first the first one after that. And
0: um, yeah, yeah. It was ridiculously I I was long if it, dude, twenty hours, man. <sighs>
1: yeah, I think I think it was I think it was about twenty. And then for <laughs> South Maroon we started at ten PM. We summoned it at eight AM. Um, so there's 10 hours to summer that wasn't as long. That may have been a 16 hour day or something.
0: Yeah. That one um, took us 10 longer. hours in the summer or in the fall, but like, yeah, it's just slow going, man. The approach on that one was straight up the mountain and it just seemed like it took forever.
1: Yeah. It's a lot of, um, it's, that's an incredible route how much vertical, you cover on the bell cord yeah. Uh, yeah. pretty, pretty amazing. Um, so I think it's one of the longest cool in in Colorado. Um, but yeah, the snow, snow travel makes everything, everything, slower. um, especially, especially using snowshoes. I skied a bunch, um, I, I approach skied a bunch, um, that I snowshoed a lot as well. And it's definitely, um, the total winter tallied up to 640 miles and, um, the difference between doing 640 miles in the winter and 640 miles in the summer is tremendous. It's just much more efficient, uh, when you, when you don't have snow Now, that's not true for going downhill on skis, but, uh, I it's pretty limited on that because, um, I went into the winter, not planning to deal so much, uh, not just dis- not trying to ski so much because uh i was trying to make really safe Abbey decisions and i was planning for the worst so i was planning to snowshoe a lot um so that i wouldn't be tempted to ski things that weren't necessarily safe (laughs)
0: yeah yeah man which uh which mountain has the biggest avalanche danger
1: um so I actually created this objective rating system for myself before before doing it, and I actually um like looked at the topos and looked at the amount of abbey terrain um, in each uh, in each wrap and actually created a a list in order of increasing or the list in order of decreasing avalanche uh, terrain exposure, and the one that has the most is snow mass. Oh really. Um well, if you consider Chicago Basin a route in itself, the Chicago the four uh the four peaks in Chicago Basin have the most okay. avalanche terrain. But second place is snowmass. And it's because the approach on snowmass uh has so much avalanche terrain that's just not avoidable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: and so that's one that I did in the late fall in the snow. Um but I didn't actually get to in the winter. It's one of the few peaks that remained on the list.
0: Yeah, man, you got what 51 by the end of it.
1: Yeah, I got 51.
0: Dude, that's, that's so significant. And so, so awesome. So are you going to go back next winter and knock off the last eight?
1: I really like to Um, at, at least, um, at at very least get those, get those eight next winter. Yeah. Um, in the process of deciding uh, what exactly is next for me, but uh, definitely getting those, get finishing, finishing it out and getting those eight is a high priority. I, I wanted to keep rolling through and just continue into the spring and get them, get them all just, just to, just to get, just to do all 59. They wouldn't count for winter, but whatever. But I, uh, I had, um, plans with family to fly back on the 23rd of March. So that, uh, didn't work out to yeah, yeah. just keep, keep going. But, um, but yeah, definitely next winter. Uh, it's on.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. What did, uh, what did your family think of you doing this? Were they like all in or were they <laughs> like, I got to imagine like you get the mom reaction of freaking out a bit.
1: Yeah, my mom My mom definitely, I think she handled it really well. I think she's gotten used to <laughs> me doing this kind of stuff at this point. I mean, I was running Class 5 Whitewater for years, and wow. so she got used to me um, doing stuff like that but still it was a very trying experience for her <laughs> and, I, and I do feel bad for the amount of stress. I, I caused her for sure. Um, I think she spent a lot of time watching the blue dot move across the screen from my satellite oh, receiver wow. device, uh, my Dorm in reach. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I think that my parents, um, they, um, I don't really know what they thought about it. um, before I started. But once I got into it and started knocking the peaks out, I think they got really into it. I mean, they, 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 had, a, they had a chart on the wall, like a, one of those map, 14er maps on the wall, uh like and they'd be crossing them off the and they'd be putting pins in the on the map every time i get one
2: that's
0: so with cool with a
1: sticky note that, with a sticky note that said like how many i i had yeah. and uh, every time i got a peek they'd update the chart uh so they got they got into it that's were, cool man that's inspiration right supportive. there yeah yeah they, they were super stoked and supportive all the way through the winter and i mean i didn't um I, I don't know that they necessarily knew what i was getting myself into or what this project entailed <laughs> until i started and got got into it and yeah. they started reading up about what i was doing and um and then and then um i think they started getting really uh excited and and nervous but excited yeah. for sure and very encouraging and they were very supportive and and super, uh, it's super good to be able to talk to them uh, as I, like, you know, made my way through the winter.
0: Yeah, definitely. What, uh, I guess for the last question here, oh man, after just saying all that, I don't want to scare your mom as she listens to this, but did you have, did you ever have a moment where you're like, so out of your element or thought to yourself, like, what the hell did I get myself into?
1: Um, I think that on my attempt to at the Wilson the Traverse, I was feeling that way. Yeah. And, um, a big, a big part of it is how tired I was at that point. Um, I trained really hard. I trained a lot. I really prepared my mind and my body for, for the rigors of the project, but trying to squeeze so many peaks back to back, um, or with much less rest than I had trained for nearing the end of the project. Um, I was really getting worn down um, more than I had intended post giardia. because um, it threw me off schedule. So, um, I was doing these things pretty tired. Um, and that's I. I don't want to be on class four when I'm tired, especially really snow covered uh, fourth class solo. Um that's a pretty daunting place to be for me um, that um, that ridge between Wilson, uh, Mount Wilson and El Diente and the, the uh, snow conditions were deteriorating there was wet slides and I was getting really sketched out by the snow and I ended up turning around about a little past three quarters of the way across the traverse like I was almost there um, uh, I just wasn't comfortable with the snow and I just kept I have the feeling in my stomach, in the pit of my stomach, like that I shouldn't be doing that, and uh, I really, you know, want to listen to that.
0: Definitely, it's, it's
1: really easy to try to ignore that and just push through <laughs> and and expose yourself to risk. Um, but I'm really glad I made the decision I did to turn around uh, and listen to the gut feeling, and, and I mean, and it was logic too. You know, I, I knew that if I had gone on to summit and by the time I came back, the snow would be even softer and in oh, yeah. worse, worse shape. So it was a good decision. But that, that there are periods of time on that traverse given how much snow was on it. Um, and having a lot of snow on, the, on those ridges makes a big difference in difficulty. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there are moments uh, there where I definitely uh, thought that I, I shouldn't be there right now. Yeah, uh, man. It, particularly Dude. With, how power, with how tired with I was.
0: It takes some like big time mental toughness to make that decision to turn around.
1: It's really hard to make that decision sometimes, especially um when you're so when you're so close. Um and that's one of the big challenges of mountaineering is uh is controlling your emotions and staying uh both uh Uh, you know, logical uh, and, and following reason and not emotions. And also um, listening to your gut when it's telling you that this isn't right. You know, that this is just, this is stupid. This is dangerous. um, You come back when the conditions are right. And it's a really, it's a really hard thing to do sometimes.
0: I got to imagine. It was really hard. And the,
1: the, the, the mental debate just, can tear you up <laughs> like that's what was happening to me on that Wilson of the integer versus it was uh it was really um this internal battle dialogue going on about pushing forward or turning around because the snow was scaring me
0: yeah yeah man well dude huge congratulations I mean like I said 51 summits in the winter is pretty, pretty epic. I mean, has anyone, do you know, has anyone done that before or?
1: Um, Well, the prior uh, winner record was 31. That was last year by um, a woman named Amy. Yeah. The record record was 31 set last year. Um, Before that, I'm not sure. I know that uh, a guy named Hamish Jallens did 27 of them. In 2008, in winter.
0: Okay, dude. Um,
1: and he he had an attempt like mine. I think he was I think he was more focused on skiing them. But he he quit about halfway through winter. I think at at 27. Um, but uh, I. <sighs> I had heard of his attempt, and uh, I think, I don't, I don't remember if I came up with the, I think I came up with this idea to try them all in the winter, and then I was looking around online to see if, uh, see if there had been attempts, and I came across his attempt, and I thought, well, that's really cool, yeah. um, and, uh, so, so yeah, um, but the fifty the full list remains to be done originally I was hoping to go for the fifty three and then um a bunch of uh, Coloradans that I met when I came out here uh convinced me to go for the full fifty nine if I'm gonna go for it that's go for awesome it, man know? that's
0: uh, so cool uh, that's how Coloradoans yeah. are i've I've found is you know they'll just be encouraging to do some crazy insane stuff so
1: <laughs> yeah for sure it's a great uh uh, incredible culture out here of uh, adventure-minded, uh, fit people. It's been really cool uh, to meet uh, a lot of them. And be and you know have the support from a lot of people through the through this experience. It was tremendous. It's a very cool community.
0: Very very cool. Uh, yeah, man, dude, it's been amazing talking with you tonight. Uh, you know, I'd love to chat with you again in the future at some point. Um, and if you're ever in Arvada, you know, um, let me know. I'll buy a beer Absolutely.
2: or
1: something. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I love that. All right,
0: you're man. great, man. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Will. Have a good night.
1: You too. Take it easy.
0: All right. That wraps up this week of the Like a Bigfoot podcast. Please join us each and every week as we try to seek out some inspiring Stories of endurance and feats of strength <laughs> and kind of the mindset of various athletes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to iTunes, uh, Like a Bigfoot. You can also check us out at our website, likeabigfoot.com and our Facebook group. Yeah, man. Thanks again to, uh, to Will. That was, that was awesome, especially for a 14ers nerd like me. To sit down and chat with someone who did 51 of them in the winter, it's still just, that feat just blows my mind still. So thank you, Will. Uh, would love to have you on in the future. Would love to hear about, you know, kayaking and, and all the other mountaineering goals that you have and all the, all the future quests you will be chasing. All right, that wraps up this week, and we will see you guys next time.